The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Evening uh, from our quarantine caves to yours, wherever you are in the world tuning in to us. Thank you for joining another art science reading group hosted uh, by myself. I'm Autumn Brown. Hi, nice to meet you. And my co-host and co-founder, Miss Amelia Conville. Um, so on this session, we're going to be talking a little bit about philosophy and a little bit about mathematics. Um, this session is called On a Higher Plane. Before we get into the content of today's session, I just wanted to uh, mention a couple housekeeping things. So, number one, this event is being recorded, just so you know. Uh, number two, the way that we're going to be doing things today is going to be a little bit different. So joining us is the phenomenal, the brilliant, the extraordinarily charismatic uh, Dr. Claire Moriarty. Um, and she's shared some slides with us. So some of the images that you are going to be discussing and um, yeah, chatting with us about, we're actually going to put up on screen as we're talking. Uh, we're going to have some comparative artwork that we're going to be bringing in later in the presentation. Uh, so if you didn't have a chance to do the reading or if you didn't have a chance to look at the artwork before joining us today, don't worry about it. We're still really glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're spending uh, your morning, afternoon, or evening with us um, geeking out about maths and artwork. Um, the other thing is, so far we've been doing these sessions fortnightly, so about every two weeks. Uh, from here on out, we're going to be moving to a monthly schedule. Uh, that is for two reasons. Number one, uh, the sessions have been growing and growing, uh, which has been great to see more folks like tuning in, joining us, and interacting with one another, and, and with Amelia, myself, and our speakers. Um, and two, uh, we are PhD researchers doing our PhDs right now um, in real time. And so sometimes uh, we, we need a little extra time to get back to our thesis work and do our reading and our writing there. So it gives us a little bit of breathing room. Um, because it can be tempting to get a little overexcited about these sessions and just hang out with you guys. So without further ado, I want to introduce my co-host and co-founder, Miss Amelia McConville. Uh, she is another uh, Trinity, uh, Trinity Early Career Researcher at the Trinity Longham Hub, and, and she will be introducing us to our speaker of the day. Thanks so much, Autumn, um, and thank you everyone so much for joining us. Um, it's amazing to have people, as Autumn says, joining us from so many different corners of the world. It's, it's a very international audience tonight, which is amazing. Um, it's been one of the silver linings of lockdown that we could bring the reading group um, to a virtual format and bring it online and thus make it more accessible um, to so many different people. So thank you so much for joining. Um, as Autumn says, yeah, my name is Amelia. Um, I'm also a PhD researcher um, in uh, Trinity. I'm uh, researching um, visual poetry and neurohumanities. So um, much like Autumn, I'm an interdisciplinary uh, researcher. Um, and yeah, it's wonderful to be here um, and sharing the ideas with everybody. Um, we would also um, just, to, I would just reiterate as well that we are encouraging everybody throughout the discussion, um, as Autumn says, you know, for the first 20 minutes to half an hour or so, Claire is gonna, we're gonna be in the capable hands of Claire, but we would encourage everybody to use the Q&A function in Zoom. Um, and as the discussion is evolving, if you have a burning question, please do write it in the Q&A function um, share your thoughts in the chat. Um, we expect this discussion to be very, very lively. Um, and around about seven o'clock, um, as Autumn said, we'll be switching over to a proper Q&A whereby we field your questions, we give them to Claire. Um, but we would really encourage everybody to like put in as many, many questions um, as possible and comments and um, make parallels because I think this is going to be such a fruitful um, overlap of disciplines and discussions. So please do contribute as much as possible. Um, once that's out of the way, I, it's my a great pleasure to introduce Claire. Um, we're so, so happy that Claire could be with us today um, to uh, take us through, uh, I think, what is one of the most, certainly one of the most colourful um, reading groups that, that we've looked at yet. Um, so I'll just, I'll introduce Claire and then uh, it's up to her to take it away. Um, so Claire is an Irish Research Council postdoctoral fellow in philosophy working at Trinity. Before coming to Trinity, she spent time at King's College London, University College Dublin, UC Berkeley and Cambridge. Her research is on the history and philosophy of mathematics, 
particularly in the 17th and 18th centuries. Typically, she's interested in the intersection of mathemat mathematics with the religious, literary, and cultural context in which it takes place. She is also a fellow for public philosophy at the Forum for Philosophy at LSE, where she has been hosting a popular philosophy podcasts and events for four years. Um, and as Claire's friend, I can also testify that she is an amazing baker, a pottery enthusiast, um, and also an amazing uh, crocheter and knitter. So there you go, Claire, over to you. And she's an amazing tomato mom, just want to put that out there as well. <laughs> yeah, the tomatoes are obviously the main focus. Well, thanks so much for having me. And thank you to the Science Gallery and thank you to the Hub. Uh, and thank you to the archives as well at Trinity, who very kindly have let us use some of their images this evening um, without them being formally taken photographs, which they usually don't do. So that's very kind of them. Uh, just to say a bit about my background, I started out in English Lit uh, and did a very mediocre undergrad at UCD then going into philosophy and specifically philosophy of mathematics, mostly through interest in set theory and infinitesimal calculus. Um, and then ever since it's kind of been 18th and 17th century intersection of philosophy and mathematics. Um, but I'm here to talk about a 19th century figure. So I'm already a little bit out of my wheelhouse, but uh, Oliver Byrne is the, you know, the man of the hour. And I'll give a little bit of an introduction to his life now. So he was born in 1810 in Avoca in Wicklow, uh, son of Mary and Lawrence Byrne. Uh, he claims he was educated at Trinity, but it looks like the, this wasn't the case. So I think Trinity has pretty good matriculation records from then, and it seems like he, he never did graduate or really attend. Uh, he's not listed as BA like he would have been either. So that's a sort of interesting feature in its own right. Um, he moved over to England. He had, well, his life is kind of defined by issues with poverty. So he had a really hard time uh, getting his work taken seriously, uh, had a lot of sort of fraught interactions with publishers um, over the various, and there were many various texts that he published in his life. Um, but in the 1840s, we find him, or maybe 1839, we find him in sort of debtor's jail uh, in London, and there's even a report from the examiner then talking about what was regarded as sort of anti-Irish prejudice in that, you know, he was there for some debts and some friend came to give the bail to, to get him out and it wasn't accepted and he was sort of forced to stay in an extra five weeks despite the fact that there was no good reason not to accept the bail. So this is kind of a, I don't know, a person whose life is really marked by a lot of anti-Irish prejudice, a lot of not being taken seriously in his own uh, intellectual community. Um, we could talk a little bit about the reasons for that later. He went off to America then, and, and as is probably quite rare for, you know, formal mathematicians, he spent time publishing work on the, uh, the importance of unnecessary training for the violent overthrow of British rule uh, in Ireland. So, uh, these texts go into close combat, uh, street fighting, genuinely that's the term used. Uh, so very strong, ardent Republican political views. Um, then he returns to England. He lives again, the end of his life in poverty with his wife. This is in the slide, his wife, Eleanor Rogburn. Uh, she was a great sort of scientific mind in her own right. So she, you know, quite rarely in the 19th century was publishing in uh, meteorology. Um, but yeah, so he dies of pneumonia in 1880 in Maidstone and is buried there. And I had the real pleasure of emailing Maidstone Bereavement Services recently to get a picture of his grave and they're very helpful. And um, yeah, so that's his life. Um, I don't know if, there's, if you guys have questions about anything more to do with that or... I was kind of interested about hearing more about his time in America and what exactly you mean when you say close hand combat. Was he, was he training, was he trying to build a kind of rebel army to bring back to Ireland? Is that what he was doing? Well, there are two publications that are sort of addressing uh, kind of art of war type stuff. Uh, so the sort of, you know, the political necessity of um, autonomy for Ireland. And then, yeah, like the practical nitty gritty of, you know, the kind of combat training you may need to secure it. So these are much harder to get your hands on these works and they're not available online like some of his mathematical stuff is. So a trip to the uh, the archives is probably necessary for those ones as well. So um, we know as well that he was. Um, I mean, he got he wrote a lot of applications, like poverty-driven applications, to the Royal Literary Fund in London throughout his life. Like one of them is written from that time when he spent in jail. 
Um, but uh, he did experience, get his sort of the working parts of his hands blown off in an explosion uh, in some uh, uh, sort of low-grade housing, I guess, somewhere in London. So when they arrived in, both him and Eleanor were very badly uh, burnt in a kind of explosion on the doorstep. So, yeah, somebody definitely lived quite a difficult life. Um, but interesting that he may end up having been sort of a self-taught mathematician, which was, you know, also true of Boole, Ramanujan, lots of other kind of, you know, pioneer and renegade mathematicians in the period. That's amazing. That's quite a colourful life, I think. As a mathematician, you don't really tend to expect something like that. You wouldn't be expecting somebody to be handling explosives, generally, maybe. Um, it's pretty extraordinary. Also, the close-hand combat and trying to find an army in America. <laughs> That's pretty extraordinary. And Claire, how did um, Oliver Byrne end up with Euclid? What, where, where is the connection there? Yeah, well, I suppose like the, it's so hard to summarize Euclid in any kind of uncontroversial way, but you know, Euclid was around 300 BC uh, and you know, these, the work isn't all original to him, but it's certainly the only surviving version of this set of works that we still have. It has incredibly interesting textual history. I think the only book with more editions uh, than Euclid's Elements is the Bible. Uh, and even right up to the sort of 20th century, this is pretty much a textbook in schools for mathematics. And though you have much more instructive and personalized introductions and loads of really famous people in the history of mathematics have, you know, produced an issue of, or an edition of the elements with their own kind of colorful introduction. Uh, the stuff, you know, the meat of the book remains the same, which is pretty unapologetic, you know, there's no motivating statements, there's no jokes, nothing. It's just kind of definitions, axioms and work through. Um, but it really was seen as, you know, the sort of great text in the teaching of anything really. Uh, and so given Byrne's massive interest in mathematical education, which I'll discuss in a second, um, it's a very obvious starting point for him. So if people looked at the reading at all, um, it's, which is just the introduction to this edition of the elements, um, they'll see that it's very short. Uh, he does one or two worked examples, um, but a lot of the stuff he's talking about there are kind of philosophy and politics of education. So the opening statement is something, it's very sort of socialist and again, like small r Republican. So he's sort of saying, well, people are so interested in expanding and growing the remit of knowledge and you know, sort of intellectual prowess, but not facilitating their attainment by the populace at large. So this is kind of the opening statement is like, look, we're, we're making amazing progress, we're thirsty for more, but one thing we're not doing adequately is making sure this information gets to, you know, the ordinary person in a sort of workable format. There is really interesting insights in educational psychology. So on the second page of the introduction, he talks about um, the way a person can become prejudiced against material. So the presentation of mathematics historically has been quite dry. And I guess what he's saying about the elements is that it certainly suffers from this sin that it's very, you know, sort of unapologetic and sort of rigid. Um, what he's saying is it's really easy if the first presentation to a subject is like this for students to turn against it and for a sort of prejudicial bias against mathematics to be formed. And I think another thing that's mentioned, and I think something that's really salient for Irish people particularly maybe, or for our education system, you know, in addition to getting prejudice against, prejudice against the subject, you can get ideas, sort of prejudicial ideas against yourself as a learner of that subject. So in addition to not liking mathematics, you can believe yourself to be terrible at it very quickly. Whereas, you know, maybe in English literature or uh, literature in general, let's say, you know, you don't like Chaucer, but, you know, some poems come in and they're for you. Whereas with this, he thinks people really get into a spirit of deciding that they're poor mathematicians. And I definitely think this is something that happens for mm -hmm. us nowadays as well, that mathematics, you know, mathematics is the kind of subject that you feel you're either good or bad at. You can't really take a piecemeal. And people are sort of very accepting of the idea of being bad at mathematics in Ireland, especially maybe in a way that they wouldn't be about literature. So I think here it's probably not controversial to say, oh, you know, I'm hopeless with numbers, I can barely add. But nobody would ever say, you know, I barely read or I don't have a favorite poem or I don't, you know, I don't like any books. It's really interesting too in the in the introduction, one of the very first sentences, and the, the two first the two first sentences in the introduction, he meant he talks about expanding the boundaries of both art and mathematics. And it's kind of a comp maybe not one 
really wielding the other one as a tool, but actually seemingly kind of blurring the lines. Is that a, a wrong kind of interpretation of that? But just the fact that it was mentioned within the first two sentences of the introduction. Again, if you haven't had a chance to read it, um, for those of y'all attending, don't worry. Um, we can link it to you as well and send it along so you can have a read through later. It's hard because one of the things we're sort of doing now is committing a sin against Oliver Byrne because he does explicitly say, I do not want this to be considered as art. art. I don't want people to approach this, you know, in terms of, I think he uses the term like the tint and shade in a kind of patronizing way to say, you know, I want people to see this for the sort of tool of science that it is. Um, so, you know, there is the kind of, he does seem to be aware that it's more aesthetically pleasing a way to learn it. But I think this is kind of founded in quite theoretically serious stuff rather than it just being appealing. So like one of the nice things he says at the end of the introduction is, I note now with pleasure that, you know, mathematics is now becoming a part of the female education system. And again, remembering that his wife was this sort of brilliant scientific mind herself. And although it might sound a bit patronizing, what he's saying is, you know, the beautiful presentation of Euclid may improve things in this endeavor because, you know, not just because women like shiny, pretty things, but because women are enculturated at least to, to find certain things valuable. And maybe he thinks that this will be more amenable or more pleasing to them, particularly uh, because they've been kind of given this focus on the aesthetic in, in education. Excellent. One or two of the other things that come up in the introduction that are really interesting, I think, are his demand that we teach people how to think, not what to think. And I guess this is a theme of Euclid fans throughout history. So I know Benjamin Franklin used to say he kept it beside his bed to do a kind of, you know, uh, intellectual gymnastics or exercise with just to keep the mind fresh. I can think that can sound really silly, but for those of us who haven't done that much mathematics in years, there can be something very specifically sort of phenomenologically special about working through a proof where we understand the inferences. So there's a special kind of like epistemological or like knowledge-based satisfaction that is achieved in moving from line to line of a proof that you understand. So this kind of interesting uh, sense in which Euclid is thought to be really valuable, not just in its own right for kind of learning off the theorems that, or the proofs that it gives, but for teaching you how to work methodically through things. And I guess like the last point I really want to emphasize, and the last two points I want to emphasize from the introduction that sort of uh, suggest a philosophy behind the work are, so he thinks what's really helpful about the colored signs that you can see in front of you now is, so if instead of describing this triangle as the sort of, well, you're not describing it, right? You're just having the blue triangle there doing the work, uh, sort of standing out in the proof for the part of the diagram it is. He's saying if you just label that ABC or something to sort of label the points that define the triangle, there's a kind of extra step of representation happening that you have to do in thinking about those parts. It, it involves a kind of translation in and out of the diagram in that reference to a part of the diagram. And what he's saying is uh, there's a sort of more direct reference that happens when you're already using the materials of geometry in the proof itself. So you're you're not requiring people to do both kind of letter-based and symbol-based thinking at the same time. He also thinks that the visual faculty is much more connected to the memory than uh, the sort of, sort of, I guess, like semantic faculty maybe. I don't know if that's true for everyone, but I'm sure it's at least true for some people. Um, and then the last kind of political note in it is this emphasis on the practical. So we even see him talking about the practical realities of using this to teach in schools. So he talks uh, in this text about how you can use dyed chalks. So he's suggesting that teachers dye chalks to use to represent the colors and that crayons or pencils can be used for the students. I don't know if we can whip through the slides to, I think it's around eight or nine, but it's one of the nice ones they've given us from the archives um, of the blue and red triangles in the young geometer. Sorry, Amelia, that one. So this method is kind of expanded in later works. So He's also talking about the price of buying rulers in the introduction to this work. Um, but it's this kind of this idea that somebody who's writing this highfalutin text on mathematics is thinking about the cost of materials for the regular educator, is thinking about the home learner, like he might have been a sort of self-talk by himself, we think. But it's this kind of this fascinating way in which he seems very engaged with very practical sort of, you know, down-to-earth issues that arise in mathematical life. 
It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Democratization, though, and he's so concerned about accessibility. A lot of the things that you were talking about that seemed to matter a lot to Oliver Byrne mattered to, you know, other sort of education scholars. The first one that comes to mind is probably the one everybody knows, uh, John Dewey. And, you know, thinking about teaching learners to think first instead of focusing on content and having them kind of fall in love with the way that we think through materials. And then there were some other education scholars who were talking about, I can't remember the name at the moment, but the gifts, that at certain ages you should be giving learners certain things um, to help them uh, with their kind of thought development process. And it's really, really reminiscent of this, but the focus on accessibility and giving this information to people for them to hold and them to wield, I think is really, really fascinating and very quite modern. Yeah, and I think there's, so the, I wanted to compare him a little bit to Berkeley, who is, you know, very famous uh, philosophical figure from Trinity, um, but also a very famous figure in the history of mathematics. Not necessarily in the most positive light in that he wrote this very scathing uh, history, or sorry, very scathing critique of uh, fluxionary and infinitesimal calculus in the 18th century. But one of the points that Byrne picks up in talking about the difficulties of teaching geometry really relates to something that Berkeley used to say. So I think it's on the third or fourth slide where so Barclay had said historically, Barclay was somebody who really thought the key to experience was, or key to knowledge was experience, and that if we're to get reliable knowledge, it's got to be the sort of stuff that we get from thinking through our sense experiences. So he says in his notebooks that he kept at Trinity, this is Barclay again, he says, the great mistake of the geometers is that they consider a line as length without breadth, or that that is possible. And what's meant by this is, in experience, so in your experience of the world around you, you'll never find length without breadth. So for the sort of thing you need to cast a length, there must be breadth. So what Barclay is saying is geometry talks about these impossible objects, these things that we can never know about in experience. Uh, and so Barclay is using that to critique the status of geometry and the status of mathematics within the kind of intellectual world. But Byrne is picking up on something really similar here when he's saying how colors can be really instructive in teaching about geometry. So in these kind of diagrams here and in the text beside them, what he's saying is he sort of gives Euclid's definition first. So he says a point is that which has position but not magnitude or a point is position only abstracted from the consideration of length, breadth and thickness. So he thinks obviously this is very jargon heavy. It doesn't mean much to people. So he thinks what, instead of using these kind of formal definitions of saying that a point is zero dimensional and that it, you know, it's at a place, but in no place, uh, that what you can do is use kind of pieces of color sort of converging and use kind of suggestion of negative space to sort of say this bit, the bit that would be none of the three colors, but the bit that would mark the transition from any into the other in the middle, that's a point. And I think the line example is particularly clear where he's saying, uh, if you, you, you know, if you, we can use colors to suggest boundaries and it's a kind of notion of a boundary that he wants for a line rather than something material and sort of, you know, constituting of parts itself. So there's this kind of interesting way in which they're both um, Byrne and Barclay kind of grappling with the difficulty of representing geometry, which is the sort of maximally abstract science and how to use, you know, we're stuck in the empirical world. We, it's difficult for us to draw a diagram that can meet the impossible standards of, you know, the pure platonic realm of the abstract. So it's kind of it's an interesting way in which they overlap this kind of engagement with each other on, on this issue. And we know Byrne read Berkeley, uh, so it's kind of a, a nice thing to think about that this might have been sort of prompted by, by those things. Absolutely. And I mean, I mean, like, the, I think the use of colour is just absolutely extraordinary. I mean, it goes without saying, it is, it is absolutely crazy how, how visual they are. And I love what you're saying about how maybe Byrne felt the need to caution against that, just how visually appealing his diagrams are in that introduction, that maybe it is, it is part of it. Um, I might be jumping a little bit ahead here, but um, I mean, the parallels between the, these diagrams and some of the, um, the abstract art that came much later, um, really, you know, like um, in, in the 20th century are, are kind of uh, insane. I mean, do you want to say, do you want to say anything about that, Claire? Or like, do well, you, I can talk about the book as a material object, which contains pictures first as a good kind of jumping off for that. Absolutely. But if you go back to the page where the Pythagorean, is it Pythagorean or even the, the sort of title page, um, right. I guess the first thing to notice is a ridiculously beautiful and expensive book. So it's not long after, you know, colour printing is, you know, a thing. 
Uh, William Pickering, who published it in 1847, is a real pioneer in publishing himself. So he sort of introduced cloth bindings, and this is very niche for people who don't care about uh, material book history, but not at all niche for those who do. Um, if we see the sort of letters um, used at the first, the first word of every proof, they were done by this very famous engraver called Mary Byfield. So there's, sort of, there's a sense of no expense spared. You know, there's four colors used. Um, beautiful different sort of fonts engaged and it was incredibly expensive to produce uh, and it represented a massive risk on behalf of the publisher uh, in using it. So at the same time that Byrne is saying, you know, don't just focus on how pretty it is and God, I'm sure he'd be really upset to see that almost the only attention that gets paid to him these days is as, you know, a pioneer of really pretty things. Um, but yeah, it is an astonishing book just in terms of the kind of visual content it presents. And yeah, the comparisons with Malevich and who is it Mondrian are kind of striking in a way that it's hard to imagine that you know the one was not informed by the other so at the top here we have Mondrian and I think again I'm speaking well beyond my remit of experience by talking about art uh, theory at all and I'd be very happy if people <laughs> jump in in the Q&A to enlighten us or direct us with better readings but I know I think Mondrian this is called neoplasticism and then below it's Malevich suprematism I know Mondrian particularly, one thing that they do share is this kind of utilitarian view on making things accessible. So we read this nice article in the first run of the reading group about how the theory of neoplasticism uh, depends on the idea of reducing artistic inputs to sort of maximally available things. So you've got shapes that are the kind of part of everybody's artistic vocabulary or you know, experiential vocabulary and colors that are not, you know, they're not difficult to cognize or understand. And that's definitely something you have in Bern as well, right? This idea that we want, you know, we want the best for the most. Um, so I don't know the theory of Malevich as well, but I know in a kind of way that relates interestingly to things you've already been talking about to do with Bern again, he's talking about, you know, um, the tyranny of reality and, you know, the situation of the artist in escaping the, you know, the the strictures of landscape or of having to represent things as they are and you know the ability to sort of pull things up to the you know the glorious realm of the abstract uh, with art so I think looking at them side by side um, I hope my head is not in the way of everyone's um, burn but it probably is um, but yeah you can see there just really is a similarity there that's striking and, and to go off of what you said about this sort of the tyranny of reality and the tyranny of being bound to what is and what we know and what we've seen. It's interesting to think about how the ways in which abstraction, both in mathematics and in artwork, can actually lead us to some really, really extraordinary places and kind of the discovery of new forms of inquiry and new forms full stop. So I think that's a really, really interesting parallel that you can see kind of in both artworks. There's nothing in nature really that looks like this and there's nothing there's there's no line in reality as you said that doesn't have breath there's no point that is you know <laughs> pointless that doesn't have any sort of you know real dimension in space these are all just concepts and i see amelia too is flipping through some of the other slides that we've got wow mondrian is an extraordinary artist and we were talking earlier about uh that cake that you saw made by a new york baker where mondrian's uh one of mondrian's pieces was represented in the cake um which is awesome uh these are not the only artists who've done really incredible work influenced um, and shaped by mathematics so you've got some incredible examples here if you wouldn't mind just just mentioning talking through yeah, well, and I have to thank Keisha Taylor at the Long Room Hub for pointing the first set out to me, which is that, so as, you know, as much as we think that um, Mondrian and Malevich are possibly responding to, um, you know, geometry and the philosophy that's attended to it in the 19th and 18th centuries, um, in kind of all disparate parts of African thought prior to, um, well, throughout, you know, centuries before any of the mathematics we're talking about happened, you have sort of fractal, use of fractals in design, in civic design, in architecture. So this is a thing where, you know, it's not responding to formal mathematics, it's making the mathematics or like manifesting. So in some cases, it looks like there is a real theory of the fractal and they have sort of formulae for how to build, you know, a sacred village or how to build, you know, a good sort of fractal design thing. And sometimes it's just because it, you know, occurs 
to them to be beautiful, but sort of again, a really interesting way in which, you know, the theory arrives, the theory of fractals, you know, the formal theory of fractal mathematics is, I think, like, Mandelbrot's 19th century, so it's, you know, a long, long time after people were designing these villages. Uh, and then in the case of Islamic art, we have, because of, you know, various strictures on figurative representation, we have, you know, and in comparison to Malevich talking about having like an artistic grammar, which is formed out of geometric shapes, we have just, you know, <laughs> the richest world full of, you know, exactly that, right? But, you know, thousands of years earlier. So, you know, really creative use of, you know, ruler and compass extension of geometric objects to just, you know, absolutely dizzying effect. So there's an interesting way in which the pictures, you know, of these, you know, Russian and Dutch artists later on very much resemble the kind of attempt at non-art that Byrne gives us in the elements. But in terms of the sort of, you know, the world of the overlap of geometry and art, like, you know, Byrne is late to the game uh, compared to the rest of the world, really. And these are just, you know, examples of two, two very general examples of huge fields of thought. And I mean, in this context, Claire, that you're talking about, I mean, can you tell us a little bit about um, the culture wars that form the backdrop of a lot of, um, I suppose, Burns writing and, and his emerging theories and proofs? Well, so, I mean, the other big area of my research at the moment or of the last few years has been the calculus sort of disputes of the 18th and 17th century. And it sounds like the driest imaginable topic, like for most people, so, you know, calculus, what is calculus? I mean, historically, calculus is kind of referring to the fundamental theorem of the calculus, which is this sort of achievement of the recognition of the inverse relationship between differentiation and integration. So just realizing there's a special relationship between uh, finding rates of change and finding irregular areas. Um, they think, you know, the, again, there'll be people who disagree with every part of this, but roughly people think Leibniz, German, and Newton, Englishman, uh, both sort of independently-ish developed it, obviously both of them richly relying on previous mathematics that is kind of converging in that direction anyway. Um, but both kind of independently have the stuff to, you know, to make the fundamental theorem, you know, their thing. Uh, Newton kind of has the ideas on board earlier, Leibniz publishes earlier, and there's an enormous dispute then about who gets to take credit for it, which, you know, creates this terrible relationship between the Royal Society in London and then European academies. And if you ever want to see remarkably intelligent people behave like children, you should watch the kind of correspondences that emerge there. I remember the Bernoullis, who were good friends of, of Leibniz, um, calling I can't remember if it was John Keel or Newton's presentation of some element of the fluxionary calculus twice cooked cabbage and suggesting that Newton didn't have the moral character necessary to invent calculus. <laughs> and at the other end, you have the sort of Royal Society people saying that Leibniz is, you know, superior notation was just a device invented to obscure what was clearly plagiarized work. And the Royal Society conducted investigation into, you know, the correspondences between Newton and Leibniz and, you know, and they put Newton in charge of delivering the ruling of it. So just really, really strange stuff. And, you know, that lots of sort of satire was written about. Um, but that's kind of earlier on. And by the time the 1730s arrive, We've got Barclay wading into the clearing, sort of saying, I don't know what you guys are fighting about. This stuff is all wrong anyway. And it opens up a whole new series of spats between Barclay, uh, the very few people who are sympathetic to Barclay in this dispute, and then a whole sort of fandom of Newtonians who are sort of seeking to protect the legacy of their sort of recently dead icon. So the exchanges between people defending Newton, not so much Leibniz, there's not so much a continental response here, but the kind of, the responses that emerge there are hilarious and Barclay behaves appallingly badly. I mean, really <laughs> trolling his opponents, his opponents kind of responding in measure back. But one of the things I included in the slides is oh, this yeah. argument about the calculus spills over into a fight about tar water. So people know probably that Barclay, um, Barclay became a, a very late promoter of tar water as a kind of cure-all health remedy. Um, but so this poem here, which I won't read out because it's terrible, um, he has a friend secretly publish. So he posts this poem to him in, you know, in a letter and says, you need to recopy this by hand so people know it won't come from me. Um, but then, you know, has him sort of publish this poem in a journal in which he refers to himself as the jolly prelate and Durin, his enemy in this, as choleric Durin. It's just a really, 
interesting, you know, in addition to how important those kind of arguments about whether or not the, the foundations of calculus were logically respectable. I mean, and these debates really echo into centuries further of mathematics. So even with people like Dedekind in the 19th century, much later in sort of 1960s non-standard analysis, you still have this great anxiety about whether the foundational sort of truths of mathematics are respectable and whether the kind of introduction of infinitely small entities into things whether it A is okay or B can be avoided fully. Um, but it's just kind of amazing the echoes of these sort of 1730s fights in, in theory afterwards. But yeah, the poems and the, the horrible letters to one another are certainly uh, a highlight for me. Perfect. And Claire, before we open up to, um, to the Q&A, and thank you so much to our uh, um, fantastically engaged uh, audience for these brilliant questions. I'm, I'm looking through a few of them here um, and hopefully we'll get a chance to, to, to get through as many of them as possible. And um, before we move to the Q&A section, Claire, um, is there any other final thoughts to leave us with in, in relation to your presentation or are you happy to move, move into our question? Well, the last overlap I want to mention, which I think the people would find interesting, is the overlap between theology and mathematics in a lot of these people's personal history. So Barclay is famously criticizing calculus as a kind of, he's leveraging a criticism of calculus against those who say that religion is being irrational in that time. So he's saying, look, if maths is allowed to be irrational in the following ways, can't we grant religion the same kind of permission or whatever? So this really interesting way in which that whole thing is anchored in a debate about the respectability of religion. And Barclay really likes to keep maths out of religion. He just thinks, look, maths and science is its own thing and it's great and whatever, but Let's not try and make theology behave like calculus. Whereas Byrne publishes, I think there's a picture here, and again, huge thanks to the manuscripts people at Trinity for letting me use this. Um, we can see he is publishing a proof of the consistency of the Holy Trinity. So the, you know, the, the God, that God is equal to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's the sort of identity equality of mathematics, but none of the three are equal to each other. This is a problem, you can't have that. Um, but Byrne is using a kind of naive, you know, mathematics of infinity to try and dissolve this problem. So if you look at the kind of notation there halfway down, what he's doing is giving a size of infinity for the kind of substantial size of, of God in its various representations. So the one that is M and then the lemmas gate, that's supposed to be M, it's supposed to be a fraction representing the kind of the kind of lesserness of a human that you would find in the infinity applying to the sun because the sun is God as a human. It's like really sort of interesting, wacky application of mathematics to, you know, sort of very, you know, highfalutin theology. Um, so yeah, that's kind of another area I'm very happy to talk about if people want, but it's another way in which I think Byrne is super interesting because he's really trying to, in earnest, it seems, solve religious problems using new mathematical techniques. It's really, before Amelia will jump into the questions, but while, while she's picking one, just the idea of like leveraging your own confidence to kind of further a philosophical, ideological or religious argument, it really puts into context too that like ideas, even mathematical proofs or things that we kind of take for granted are so rigorous that they must, you know, this must only be true and it must emerge like crystalline and perfect as this truth. In science and in mathematics, all of these things emerge from a culture. They emerge from people with biases. And, you know, it's just really, really incredible to kind of take an anthropological view to things like mathematics and to things like science and to realize that knowledge, you know, and ideas, truths or proofs as we understand them, maybe aren't pure or don't exist completely separate from us, but they're created by us. So it's really, really- oh, Barclay is really claiming this with calculus. He's saying, you guys love Newton so much, you admire him like a god. You, you have faith in the sort of religious sense that, you know, so how can you be so critical of people who blindly believe in various mysteries of religion or whatever? So it's so many interesting parallels. Crazy. Amazing. Um, so I'm very happy to open the Q&A section now. Um, okay. I'm just going to take out a pen so I can make it. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> and these are some really uh, like fantastic questions. So we'll, we'll try to power through as many of them as possible. Um, I'm actually, I'm going to start with, uh, with a meaty one um, from, so this is from Francisco Contreras, um, who is actually is, is a graduate of St. John's College in Annapolis, and I know has studied Euclid via Byrne, and I believe taught classes on book five of uh, Byrne's Euclid. Um, and yeah, so he's also a very dear friend of mine, so I'm delighted that he could be with us tonight. Uh, Francisco asks, to what extent is Byrne's presentation more than mere aesthetics and
and pedagogy. Though not explicit in his introduction, I always thought that the move away from algebraic way of writing proofs is a philosophic, philosophical decision. One view is that since the advent of symbolic algebra, since Descartes, most characteristically, geometry became detached from actual sensual experience. I always wondered if Byrne shared that view, since a return to shapes in proofs is a return to the ancient Greek understanding of shape and extension. Is there something to this theory, um, especially in light of your mention to Berkeley and Byrne's relationship with his thought? Well, I guess there's way too much in that <laughs> to give any sort of sophisticated answer. And it seems they probably know lots more about parts of this than I do. But I think a really interesting feature of it is, you know, Euclid is primarily at least, or at least in this first six books, a geometric project. And in the time that we're talking about, so the 19th century or Burns time, this is really a time in which geometry is really becoming deprivileged in mathematics. So um, increasingly we're trying to arithmetize, sort of transfer into algebraic or arithmetical understandings. So, you know, the, the pure version of things is non-geometric. So it's sort of interesting that you know, Byrne is so focused on, I mean, he does work that's not geometric as well, but it definitely is uh, a focus of his to stay kind of in this, in the geometry realm and to, you know, to, to enjoy it for what it is. So he definitely seems to think, I mean, in terms of the sort of pedagogy remark, it's interesting that he is saying that it's not just the end of learning geometry, that he thinks there's something very special about geometric reasoning in that. And I wonder if, this does distinguish a little bit from arithmetic or algebraic uh, forms of reasoning that there is a kind of different sort of exchange process happening that you are reasoning about spatial properties or about, you know, planes and points. Um, but, you know, in a sort of purely formally represented way in the mind or something. So I wonder if there is some special connection there for him. He definitely seems to think it's, it's highly important to be focused on visual inputs and the points of memory. So I've got uh one comment from an audience member, uh, Dr. Eve Patton, and then a shorter question to follow up with. Um, so Dr. Patton says, I suppose Byrne could, have, uh, could be compared to fellow 19th century uh, Irish mathematician, William Rowan Hamilton, who saw astronomy, mathematics, and poetry within the same realm, addressing the same questions, very much in the school of Wordsworth which will have relevance for Claire's work on, Ber on Barclay using calculus to address the concept of theological doubt. So wondering if you could speak to that. And then we just had a quick question from Hilary Ray. Um, where did, did Barclay study mathematics anywhere formally? Is there, or was he truly like, when you say self-taught, could you just expound upon that a little bit more? So I take it you mean Byrne here, because Barclay was a, you know, straight up Trinity superstar yeah. undergrad. I mean, he really Sorry, did, yes, you know. Byrne. Yes. Byrne yes. <laughs> no, and the thing is, because obviously his life was uh, so difficult, this is not a person who biographies yeah. were written about, who got to take that much time to kind of, I mean, he is constantly declaring his genius in the face of skepticism. And I think I had a lovely chat with historian Kevin Whelan this morning about you know the the status of Irish intellectuals in in Britain in that period and how difficult it was for them to be taken seriously and you sort of you know you see this great paranoia in Byrne and justified one that he's not being taken seriously and he's being discriminated against but one that sort of produces really irascible responses in him as well in a way that certainly you know it's very characteristic of a lot of kind of you know oppression as it manifests today as well as that you you know we think about microaggressions and that kind of thing but you know a certain continuous habit of being oppressed in sort of subtle ways will sort of produce, you know, the kind of outcome that the oppressor wants often by, you know, you know, disposing you to, to certain ways of being. So we don't really know about his formal education, okay. uh, except that he lied about it, it seems like. Um, I suppose he could have been, you know, attending or in the way that we would think of auditing now, maybe it wasn't so hard to slip into a class, but given how much more one-to-one -one things would have been back then, it's hard to see uh, how that would have worked as well. I mean, there's probably just loads of people who'd be better equipped to know how easy it would have been to sneak into lectures in Trinity at the time. He certainly <laughs> was in Ireland and it wouldn't really have been anywhere else for him to learn. <laughs> Hamilton is an interesting connection. And again, another person sort of famous for a, a slightly... Uh, say sparky uh, personality. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how to think about the sort of connections between uh, sort of literary world for Hamilton. I mean, I suppose, I mean, there is a great literary quality to a lot of the writing that, that Byrne is doing. But again, it seems to be that when he's doing maths, he wants you to focus on the maths. And he is a very a sort of man of great practicality. 
I guess you all know there can be real um, sort of prejudice, uh, even within mathematics, you know, the sort of more speculative, pure stuff is seen as the higher, the more, you know, intellectually great and sort of lower, more applied stuff is seen as mundane. And Bernard does continually apply himself to the mundane stuff. So, he, you know, he's trying to write books about how to use train lines to calculate the shape of the earth and, you know, to help people at sea calculate logarithms quicker. So he really, you know, allows himself to sort of get mired in the, in the nitty gritty of, of applied mathematics. But I don't know. I mean, I'd love to do more work on his writing. I mean, presumably the political stuff, which I haven't been able to get access to since lockdown, um, has much more of the kind of rhetorical flourish that we would expect from somebody who's not teaching mathematics, but rather trying to inspire a violent overthrow. So I look forward to um, harassing Eve over that when I get a chance to have the material. Cool. Um, um, oh, I think Amelia, you're on mute. Sorry, my mistake. I'm back now. Um, so yeah, I'm just having another look um, through the questions here. Um, so in terms of the actual um, reception of the text in Ireland, uh, Colin Mulcahy asks, do we know if any attention was paid to this 1847 book in Ireland at the time, given through a uh, given what Ireland was going through during this period? Um, and Colin also asks about any instances um, of either material in this book or um, any other mathematics books that used colour before this. Like, so was this landmark and was it, how was it received in Ireland, I suppose, is, is, is Colm's questions. Uh, it certainly wasn't the first kind of, you know, colour publication at all. But I mean, in terms of how, I mean, if you just, I, I, you know, attached a load of sections, like sort of the prettier bits of the, uh, the book to the reading, just to give you people a sense of the way he represents different parts of the mathematics in the first six books of the elements. Uh, but I mean, there's color everywhere. I mean, it's extremely generous. As I said, they've got these beautiful kind of um, special engraved first letters. I mean, there really is a no expense spare kind of thing. He definitely fell out with the Pickerings. I know that something else he had published was withheld by him because he failed to pay on something he owed. So I think they ran maybe a thousand. They tried, they were setting out to run a thousand of Burns Euclid, but it definitely like no more than a hundred or something were bought in the initial run. And I can't imagine given the situation in Ireland that's alluded to in the question that many of them were sold there. Um, I suppose in general, I, I find it really surprising that Ireland doesn't claim Byrne more strongly and that we don't, because he has, you know, this very rich kind of polymath energy, do you know, he, he's giving you politics, giving you maths, giving you beautiful presentation of artwork, um, giving you the Trinity in mathematical format. Um, so I, I guess my great hope is that with more enthusiasm for Byrne, and I'll try and, you know, gin up as much more as I can in my own research, uh, that we will discover that there's lots more there. And that, you know, for anyone who works in history or history of ideas, it seems to be just you need to get the right people interested. And then, you know, you know, information comes out of places that you would never expect it to come from. So I don't know. I don't know anything about the Irish reaction to the text, except that people love it now when they see it, but uh, I'm very hopeful that, you know, increasing interest in him could, you know, bear, bear nice fruit there. And we should say as well that people can buy the, the Tashin edition. Do you want to say a word about that, that specific edition, Claire? That well, I have it here. I don't want to be, you know, plugging any art books or producers, but it comes, you know, it's very nice and it, it's basically just a, you know, a facsimile of the original. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it's lovely. But I think getting your hands on any of his other books is pretty much impossible. So. The one I was allowed to use in early printed books in Trinity of that late one, The Young Geometer. Um, I don't know anyone who has that for sale. So, yeah. Uh, we've got another question from Sahar Ahmed. Uh, so, full disclosure, Sahar is a researcher as well at the Trinity Long Room Hub, um, an incredible researcher at that. So she asks, the visual faculties and memory is something that came up yesterday in Amelia's talk as well. And I'm wondering if the way Claire talking about mathematics can translate onto the way Amelia and those that she studies talks about poetry. So this is actually for both of you guys, if you wouldn't mind, and just for a little bit of context. Um, so every Wednesday, we as researchers, part of our, our rent to pay uh, for, for having the privilege to, to uh, keep our desks at the Trinity Long Room Hub, is that we have to present our research and talk about what it is that we do and what we're interested in. And uh, this Wednesday, uh, Amelia gave an absolutely blazing, sky-piercing talk on her research um, into visual poetry and neuroaesthetics. So if you both wouldn't mind taking on that question from Sahar. 
I don't have too much to say about it, except that if we go to the slide where, I mean, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, right? So the ancient, the rhyme, the ancient mariner guy, uh, he wrote to his brother expressing enthusiasm to write a poem for every proposition of Euclid's elements, which would have been a lot of poems. But I do include in that frame, there is kind of like some of the verbiage of the opening of the poem. So, you know, if you can look at that alongside Burns' image, it's kind of, so yeah, here you go. So. Um, this is him sort of doing a poem based on the first uh, proposition in Euclid's first book, which is about constructing an equilateral triangle, equilateral triangle given any uh, finite line. So certainly, you know, there is lots there that poets have found inspiring. Um, and then, you know, it's nice to look at the visual analog, but I'm afraid Amelia is so much more the expert here that I should just throw over the... Yeah, I mean, like, thank you very much, Sahar, for the question. And again, I'm not going to monopolize the discussion because we're here to talk about burn and we're here to give Claire the platform. Um, but I will just say that um, for briefly, as Autumn says, um, I do study, uh, I do study visual poetry. Um, and there's actually, I mean, there's actually a bit in Burns' introduction that I think I was saying to Claire and Autumn that I almost maybe want to try and include as some sort of epigraph um, in my own thesis because it's, I think the exact quote I have it here is that I think he's quoting, um, and Claire, you can correct me if I'm wrong, he's quoting Horace and it's that, that bit where he says, a feebler impress through the ear is made than what is by the faithful eye conveyed. And I think that uh, like line just exactly sums up one of the main research questions that I'm actually looking at in terms of the visual impact of poetry and visual poetics and how meaning can be configured through uh, like primarily through visual impact and not necessarily through what we hear. So I suppose there is kind of a link to be made there. Um, yeah, between um, I suppose, yeah, how visual tools assist us in understanding and learning and impact. So yeah, totally. I guess it's all about trying to get some kind of abstract content across, isn't it? So like with a poem, it may be like a feeling, an idea, a mood, some series of ideas. And with, you know, the geometry, it's this kind of representation of these truths or facts of geometry. And, you know, it certainly helps to have something stimulating, you know, one of the senses that those of us that can see rely on, the, you know, the most uh, to take the content in with. Absolutely. Um, there's a couple of people asking um, questions about um, Eleanor Rogburn. Um, so yeah, even Lam asks about uh, not seeing a lot of, of uh, content online about that. That isn't just mentioning her as Burn, Oliver Burns wife. Um, so Claire and uh, Evelyn is asking, do, do you have a recommendation of an article or another place to learn more about her? Um, and we will just say as well that we're very happy to send um, follow up emails to um, to everybody who's here. You know, just sometimes we do, um, Otto and I call it our, we do our B-sides follow up whereby if anything interesting comes up in the discussion we're very happy to send a follow-on email to to um, attendees with uh, resources so perhaps clearly like yeah I'm sure we can liaise um, and, and send someone on and similarly if anybody has any particularly interesting links that pertain to any of this content feel free to post them in the chat and we will circulate them afterwards because it's good to keep the network up. Well I know there are at least two publications by her in sort of meteorology engineer engineering so I can definitely if you get me on Twitter I can definitely go have a look for them because I know I did get my hands on one of them before mm -hmm. um, so that is part of it and then I guess like another really interesting thing about her contributions is you know this is a period where we don't you know we don't know so much about Burns biography that we know that she wasn't a sort of you know fundamental contributor to lots of the ideas he had so I don't know I'm sorry to make Amelia go to the slides again but one of the things they have in the Trinity um, manuscripts archive is this book called The Trinal Calculus which which Byrne wrote actually titularly in response to Barclay. So he says, Barclay pointed out all the flaws in the calculus. Here I have a go at a new calculus of my own. But if we look at the top image there, which is sort of beautifully illustrated, uh, it's sort of, you know, it says Oliver Byrne's trinal calculus and then Miss El Eleanor Byrne signs it. So, I mean, is she doing the illustration there? Is she compiling things? I mean, there is a sort of prominent place for her name there on that, you know, prominent page with this beautiful image. Uh, so I think we also should assume maybe that there is, you know, a collaborative spirit between the two of them, especially given that, you know, a lot of Burn, a lot of Oliver Burns um, less glamorous work is in work that's much more closely related to the stuff that she was associated with expertise in. So in kind of engineering and weather systems. Um, so yeah, I wish we knew more about her. And again, kind of piggybacking off the last answer, I hope, you know, more enthusiasm emerges for Byrne can teach us more about her as well um but yeah so other than I mean I have their marriage certificate and then those two publications but other than that and his using her face uh when he was he invented this stuff called burn ore which is some new composition of metals 
um, you know, she was the kind of the face that he used to decorate those coins. Um, so obviously, a, you know, a person of great importance in his life, but no, I wish I had more answers specifically, but do send me a, a Twitter message or something and I'll look up that paper. And just very quickly, so we did just um, put in not only um, my email and Amelia's email in case you want to learn more about our research or talk about the Art Science Reading Group, but we've just included again um, Claire's Twitter account in case you'd like to contact her or tweet at her, ask for ask some more questions or follow up, and you can find her handle right there in the chat. Uh, we've got another question from Tim Stote, and he asks. Mondrian's neoplasticism was named concrete art by his collaborator, Theo van Doesburg. Uh, the reason for this was to suggest that the abstract world of geometry was more real than the world of appearances. I wondered to what extent was such neoplatonism, uh, uh, neo excuse me, uh, shared by Byrne as they seem to be, as they seem to part ways here. It's so hard for me to think of, because in early modern philosophy, the abstract and concrete are usually opposites. So, you know, so that the abstract is the sort of pure, pure stuff of thought and the concrete is the kind of realisation of potentially abstracted in sort of material stuff. Yeah. Uh, so it's hard for me to see those words as, as linked in the way, but obviously, you know, why wouldn't a 19th century artist or when, when is the early 20th century Mondrian? You know, why wouldn't we have different ways of using them? Um, so, can you just maybe give me the end of the question again? Sorry. Sure. No, 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 bother. Uh, pulling it back up again. So, um, I wondered to what extent was such a neo, uh, was such neoplatonism shared by Byrne, um, as they seem to be worlds apart? Whew. Well, I don't I mean, I don't know to, you know, I know that the Byrne read Barclay, which is why he sort of, you know, directs this later calculus attempt at him. We know he read the ancients. So we know that his sort of, like a lot of his justification of the importance of getting Euclid to the people is based on this idea that, you know, since these early figures gave good reasons why it was the most important thing to learn, nobody else has, you know, decided against it. You know, the quotation of Horace and stuff, but in terms of Neoplatonism, I'm not sure um, how those things would link up. Um, I, I wish better answers. He had a really interesting point in the middle. He said that the reason for this was to suggest that the abstract world of geometry was more real than the world of appearances and what we see in reality. Well, there is, I mean, I, I, we discussed this earlier, you know, uh, but the, you know, early modern philosophy, particularly, there's, you know, some people who just think the more pure, the more abstract, the better. So you've got people like Descartes and Spinoza who are really trying to model everything on the kind of perfect, abstraction that you get in mathematics and logic for example and then a kind of rival crew and you know it's not as simplistic as this but then you have people like Barclay who are you know just really have a high regard for the ability of experience to deliver you reliable knowledge so definitely this idea of what is the real you know what gives you true knowledge what is most real is really a huge subject of back and forth between you know the greatest history history sort of historical philosophical thinkers and I suppose it'd be very natural to see that echoed in exchanges in art as well, where, you know, in one period or for one kind of personal disposition, uh, capturing the reality of nature and the glory of experience is, you know, what is always going to be most prime. And then, you know, for people like Malevich, you talk about, you know, escaping the tyranny of reality, this kind of, or, you know, for Mondrian moving, you know, beyond, and I see, I see it in Mondrian's kind of drawing of trees over the years, going from like really realistic stuff to things that barely look like trees anymore. But this real, you know, ascension up to this very kind of abstract representation of things. So yeah, I, I guess I'm not surprised to see the same kind of argument happening in, in art theory where, you know, people really either going for or going against the emulation of the abstract. Okay, gosh, thank you. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, I should like, apologize again for not knowing quite so much about art as I'd like no, to, but, um, yeah. Not, not at all. It's, it's been fantastic. And I, I think I speak for everyone when I say we could literally listen to you. And I mean, we have previously listened to you talk on for much longer. Um, but sadly, I think we're coming to the end of, of our, uh, our time together with everybody. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like I just it's, it's really just up to me to say thank you so much, um, Claire, for, for being with us here and for, um, for just an absolutely wonderful discussion. Um, I think that this is just like so enlivening and so enlightening. Um, so, so, yeah, much. I mean, thank you to both of you so much. And thank you to the whole yeah, Science Gallery and to Manuscripts and Archives.
Uh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's been it's been wonderful um, to have this platform, and, and thank you so much to Science Gallery and the Hub, um, as you say. Um, I think, as Oda mentioned at the start, we're um, we're transitioning to a monthly format for the reading group from next month onwards. So, yeah, keep an eye out for on the um, the Hub website for dates and and for our next session, and we're we're finalising the details for the next one. So it should be extremely fun. Um, but yeah, I'll hand over to Autumn for the final word. But just um, in the spirit of just you know making making this um, so accessible to all of us and so accessible. I mean, I think very much in the spirit of Burn, you, Claire, have succeeded in, in making um, Euclid and geometry and all this kind of stuff so accessible to us. So thank oh, you. That's so, so nice. Much. What a great comment. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, so just to close us out, um, yeah, thank you all for continuing to show up, hang out with us and meet and talk to all of these incredible experts um, with us. And I want to say too that so far, um, uh, we've had a lot of fellows and researchers, but PhDs is just kind of one way to make make an expert. And so we believe in that experiential um, expertise as well. And um, our next um, session is going to be on June 18th, uh, same time as always. Um, and we're still confirming the details, but I can guarantee that the next one will be literally out of this world. Uh, so we're going to be taking on some new sciences and there will be more dad jokes to come. So look forward to that. Um, as always, uh, thank you from our quarantine caves to yours. Uh, stay safe, stay curious, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs>